are going to go to the Word of the Lord tonight. And um, I've got one verse of Scripture that we're going to read. And got a lot of notes to get through tonight. Um, I think, I think I can do it. And the interesting thing is that I think this lesson and the next, we're going to just use the same verse for our text. So, um, now I'm not talking about just if I have to break this lesson up, but this should be lesson four in our series and then even lesson five in the series. Probably use this exact same verse for a text then as well. Because in this and the next lesson, we're going to be dealing with a very, very important subject. Uh, we've been talking about, this is a series entitled Understanding Separation. And we've been talking about separation. And tonight we're going to look at a specific aspect of that separation. So turn with me to Isaiah 59 and verse 19. And we're going to use it as a text tonight. Um, though I don't really intend to go into a full explanation of the verse tonight. All right. Um, I may, we never know what's going to happen. But that's not my intention at the moment to go into a full explanation of the verse. I'm really just using it. As Elder Scherer once said to me, he said, a text is just a jumping off place. And uh, so that's where I'm going to jump off tonight. Amen. Isaiah 59 and verse number 19. The book of Isaiah 59 and verse number 19. It is most likely a familiar verse of Scripture for many of us. At least part of it is familiar to many of us. Isaiah 59, 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now, as I said, I'm not going to get into an in-depth explanation of this verse, nor am I going to try to resolve the controversy about where the comma should be. I don't know how many of you have heard that. In the original Hebrew, there is no comma. Uh, because there are no punctuation marks in the original Hebrew and Aramaic. They don't have periods and commas and all these other things. And you just have to judge by context where a sentence begins and ends. Context and word formation and just a lot of things. And so there are those who say that this verse should be read when the enemy shall come in, comma, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. 
I'm not going to try to resolve that tonight. I'm just going to leave that hanging in your mind. Maybe I should give an assignment to Brother Hilton and tell him to research this and come back to us with an answer. I'm asking you. That's why I'm doing this. If I wanted to do it, I'd do it. Um, but I'm not asking you to do it. So, But it's an interesting way of looking at things. Either way, it doesn't really change the main idea of the verse. That God will respond to the attack of the enemy. God will respond. And the way that you know God has responded is when God lifts up a standard. It is the lifting of the standard that signals God's defense. Well, hallelujah. The lifting of the standard signals God's defense against the enemy. Well, hallelujah. Tonight, as I said, we are in our series entitled Understanding Separation, which will eventually become my next book. And... Um, this lesson slash chapter tonight, I am entitling The Need for Standards. The Need for Standards. We're going to talk about that here tonight. So if you would put your Bibles down, if you would lift your hands, lift your voices, let's ask God to speak to us tonight. I need the help of the Holy Ghost. I always need the help of the Holy Ghost. I really need His touch tonight. Could we pray together, everyone? Lord Jesus, I worship You and I praise You and I need You tonight. Would You help me, God, to deliver this that I believe You put upon my heart, God. Help me, O Lord God, to deliver the Word of the Lord to this people and to feed the us in Jesus name in Jesus name would you praise the Lord together right now before you're seated everybody lift up a praise to God can we let's praise him let's praise him let's praise him God bless you you may be seated now I have tried to point out over the last uh, few lessons, and this really is only lesson number four, though it's way more than four weeks of involvement here because we've spent two and three weeks, I think four weeks on one of the lessons. And, um, and so it's many, many more weeks than just four weeks of lessons, but but in all of those weeks that have covered those first three lessons, I've done my best to point out to you that God expects His people 
to be holy. And that he expects his people to be separate from the rest of the world. Now, I hope that in the last lesson I settled that issue. I hope that no one has a question about the importance of separation. But I want to ask you a question tonight. And that is, if we are required to be separate, how do we determine whether we have actually accomplished that separation? Is it just left to our own personal whim? Can we just declare, well, I am separate, therefore we are? How do we know that we are really separate from the rest of the world? Well, it appears obvious to me that there has to be some standard by which we may observably show our separation from the world. Did you get what I said? There's got to be some definitive answer. Some standard, if you please. That will observably show to us and to the world that we are different. And I stress the word observably. In fact, I want to tell you why that word is so important in the statement I just made. And it's based on a scripture that we looked at in our last lesson. But I didn't deal with this particular aspect of the scripture. And so tonight we're going back to 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. Now you will remember this is the favorite verse of those who say that there is no need for us to look different than the rest of the world. They love this verse of scripture. Though they hate the Old Testament by and large. They like to pull out a scripture every once in a while. If they think it helps their cause. And so for all of their claims that we don't abide by the Old Testament. The first place they'll take you. When they want to try to prove to you that we don't have to be different is to 1 Samuel 16, 7, which is in the Old Testament. Now, we dealt with this last week, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it again tonight. I will just remind you of what we said. Let's read the verse. But the Lord said unto Samuel... Look not on his countenance. Don't look on his countenance. Or on the height of his stature. Don't look at the height of his stature. Because I have refused him. For the because Lord. Because I've refused him. For the Lord not as does man not seeth. see the way man sees. For man looketh on the outward appearance. Man looks appearance. on the outward appearance. For the Lord looketh on the heart. And so this is their claim. God's just looking at your heart. God doesn't care about your outward appearance. God only looks at the heart. And I explained to you last week. That that is a twisting of this verse of scripture. First of all the Bible does not say that God only looks on the heart. Secondly this has nothing to do with the way he wants his people to dress. Because God did not say to Samuel 
Don't look at his clothing. God said, look at his countenance, his facial features. And and, and don't look on his countenance. And don't look on the height of his stature. Now, that's not a Mississippi way of saying statue. Got one of them there yard statures? (laughs) I say that for Brother Hall's sake, praise God. Um, That's not a southern way of saying statue. Um... Stature means his, his, how tall he is. And, and God says to Samuel, now what's Samuel doing? Samuel is there to anoint a king. And the first and only king Israel has had was a man who was head and shoulders above all the rest. He was taller than anybody else. And so Samuel's looking for a, a, a successor And of course, he's going to look for someone who would resemble the first king. That's his definition of kingly. That's right. That's the way it is. We tend to do that. Um, No matter what the situation is, you, you tend to use the first pastor that you had in your life as the example by which you measure others. It just happens. It's a part of life. And Samuel, no doubt, was trying to find someone who resembled Saul. And God said, quit it. I'm not choosing this king based on the way he looks or how he's built. I'm choosing this king based on something entirely different. You, Samuel, are looking at his outward appearance, but I am looking at his heart. We know this because God consistently called David the replacement, uh, mind you, the replacement. God called him a man after mine own heart. God was looking not at David's stature nor David's countenance. God was looking at David's heart. Now we dealt with that. We also went through and showed you a lot of scriptures to prove to you God does care about the outward appearance. The thing I did not deal with last week is what I want to focus on uh, on tonight because I said that there should be an observable standard. Why do I say that? Because of this very verse. For the Lord looks on the heart, but man looketh on the outward appearance. That says to me, I can't tell if you're a Christian based on what's in your heart. Man has only one way to look at us and see that there's a difference. He can't see what's happening in our heart, but he can tell if there is a difference on the outside. Who is it we're trying to win? We're trying to win men. And the only way that men can see that we're not like the rest of the world, they've got to see a difference in our outward appearance. 
Now, when they get to know us, they can tell things about our spirit and our attitude. They can tell if we're constantly grumpy and hateful and short-tempered. We're a cheater, a liar, or even just play really loose with the truth. Some people, you know, one of these nights I'll get on lying. I'll deal with that as we go through this series on separation. and We'll talk about, no doubt, the difference between those who speak a lie and those who make a lie. Because there are some that you judge their words, they haven't told any lies. What they've said has been accurate. But they only said enough to lead you to believe something that's not true. So they didn't tell you a lie, but they sure made one. Now people can figure all of that out. That's another lesson for another day. People can figure all of that out by spending time with us. But, but those who don't have the opportunity to really be around us and be able to tell those things about our inner man, they need some kind of guiding light. They need some kind of outward show. That we're not like the rest of the world. We don't follow the fads and fashions of this old world. Hollywood doesn't influence the way we dress. Or the way we do our hair. We don't try to look like pop stars, rock stars, or sports stars. We're not interested in trying to be like the world. Man can only see what is displayed through our outward appearance. That's right. And so this is important that there be this observable standard. The only way that the world can look at us and know there's a difference is if there is some standard of holiness. Now that's a term that we have come to use. It is not a term that's found in the scripture. And as I've explained to you before, using extra biblical terms is not a sin. That's why, that's why you shouldn't try to argue against the Trinity by saying, well, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Don't do that. You use a lot of terms that are not in the Bible. I remember many years ago when I was, when I was working under Elder Wayne McLean um, in our young couples Sunday school class, um, an, another minister and myself, uh, we put on a debate for the young married couples on Sunday morning, a debate on the oneness versus Trinity. And, 
and this other minister and myself took the Trinitarian side. And we had a, a preacher and a couple of, of good uh, established saints. Uh, there were three of them that were taking the oneness side and the two of us took the Trinitarian side. And so the preacher on the oneness side of the argument, uh, one of the things that I remember him saying was, well, he said, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible and I'm going to stick with only Bible words until the rapture. <laughs> and I laughed. And when it came time to respond, I said, oh, really? And where exactly do you find the word rapture? It's not in there. But we use it. It's not wrong to use it. Most of us don't know what it means. That's right. We think, well, we think it means catching away, but that's not really what the word rapture means. Rapture, look it up. You got, you got a dictionary? Yeah, well, that's what I mean anymore. That's, that's a Bible, that's a dictionary, that's a communication device. Hopefully it's not a theater. A feeling of intense pleasure. What? Or joy. Okay. Listened with rapture. Doesn't mean she got caught away. Physically. Okay. So, so then they say, okay, what's happened is folks have taken that term and co-opted it to, to mean the catching away. And that's what we mean by it. But that's not the way the word was originally used. When it first was being used in Christian circles, it was just to express this intense joy and, and, and grandeur that we're going to experience at the moment of the catching away. We will experience rapture when we're caught away. Right? And it just, it, it's kind of morphed into this other meaning. But, but, but I'm saying using words that are extra biblical is not necessarily a problem. Now, the word Trinity is not a problem because it's extra biblical. It's a problem because it's anti-biblical. You understand the difference? Anti, against. So the reason why the word Trinity is a problem is because it is against what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach a tri-unity for God. It teaches here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Echad. That's Hebrew. That means one. That's the most simple, basic number. It doesn't mean three in one. It means one. And God is numerically one. That's why Trinity is a problem. The word Trinity. 
It's, it is anti-biblical. It's against the scriptures. All right? So, so when I use the term standards of holiness, that's extra-biblical, but not anti-biblical. Everybody with me? I'm not trying to make this overly complicated. It's, it's really very simple. So then, what is a standard? Well, even in our verse of Scripture, as I said, I don't really intend to go into an in-depth um, exposition of Isaiah 59, 19. But when it talks about the Spirit of the Lord lifting up a standard, the word standard literally means a flag or a banner that is used as a distinctive emblem of a government, a body of men, a military unit, etc. That's what the standard is. We're going to show you that in just a few moments in the scriptures. It's a flag. That's what a standard is. It's a flag. There are other meanings. That is the first meaning of the word standard. The second is any established measure of extent, quantity, quality, or value. Such as a standard of weight. If there's no standard of weight then the grocery stores could tell you they're selling you a pound of hamburger meat. And if there is no standard, it could be three ounces. But they are held to a standard. That is an accepted unit of measure. The third definition is any type or model or example for comparison. This is how we use it when we talk about a standard of conduct. This is the model conduct. It is a criterion of excellence. This becomes the standard by which all others are judged. All right? That's the three basic meanings for the word standard. Now, we want to, we want to especially uh, use this first definition because the word standard, when you look at the etymology of the word, that is the history of how the word was developed. When you look at the etymology of the word, it comes from an old French word that means a banner. And so anytime we think of a standard, we should immediately think of a flag that is flown high for all the world to notice. Now a flag is defined as a piece of cloth or bunting that bears devices and colors to designate a nation, a state, an organization, etc. We see this usage in the book of Numbers chapter 2 and verse 2. Numbers 2 verse 2. Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. Now, here's what, here's what was commanded of the children of Israel. 
Each of the 12 tribes are to encircle the tabernacle, which is a lesson in and of itself because the tabernacle, the, the meeting place of God was to be the central most point of their life. Not the afterthought. That's, I, I've explained this before, but I will never understand one God apostolics that move off to a place and then try to find a church. That tells me the church is not the central focal point of their life. It's an afterthought. Well, the church ought to be the center of your life. Everything you do ought to revolve around the church. Another lesson for another day. I'm throwing a lot of freebies in tonight that probably won't make it into the book, but, but you're getting it tonight. But here's the thing. God said he wanted each of these tribes to encamp around the tabernacle, but he wanted them separated from the other tribes, and he wanted anybody that was approaching to be able to look and see what tribe it was. And the way they did that was as soon as they set up camp, the first thing they would do is raise up their banner, their flag, their standard. The word, uh, the King James uses the word standard. Each, uh, every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard. Now, don't misunderstand what that's saying. That's not an individual standard for each person. That was the standard or flag of their father's house. In other words, the Reubenites had a flag that, that designated we are of the tribe of Reuben. The Danites had a flag that indicated we are of the tribe of Dan. So anybody approaching would know immediately who their daddy was. It could be seen from a distance who their father was and what tribe they were a part of. This was a command of God. It was to bear the emblem of their father's house as a visible sign to let the world know who their father was. And I'm saying to you tonight that is what standards do for us. They tell this world at a distance who our Father is. They ought to be able to stand back and look and know that's not an alcoholic. That's not a bar hop. That's not a clubber. That's not a drag queen. There's something different about the way they look and we can tell it at a distance. We know who their father is. Because remember, remember there's going to be a family resemblance. If God's our father, we're going to look like our father. And our father is holy. And so if we don't look Holy, there's a problem. There's no family resemblance. 
Now, please don't take offense at this. I'm only quoting Elder Westberg when I say this. Blame him. And he told he used to love to tell the story behind the pulpit of the black couple who had a Chinese baby. And they named it What Went Wong. Blame Elder Westberg for that. I'm telling you tonight that there ought to be DNA that shows a resemblance between us and our father and us and our mother. And the mother is the church. So we ought to look like God our Father and we ought to look like our church. There ought to be a resemblance. Listen to me. Look, this one thing alone, I shouldn't really, for most of you, the Bible says a word. Well, no, the Bible didn't say it. Benjamin Franklin said a word to the wise is sufficient. Some of those things maybe we should add. No, no, we shouldn't. But, but it, it, it gets quoted like it's Bible. But, but Ben Franklin had a lot of, don't read everything he said. Don't believe everything he said. But, but he did say some good things. But a word to the wise ought to be sufficient. All right? So for any real, honest-hearted, sincere, apostolic, under the sound of my voice, I really shouldn't have to teach a lot of holiness standards. You ought to be able to look around at the way the rest of the church looks and say, I want to look like Mama. I'm waiting for some of you to notice. Those listening online will just have to guess what I'm doing right now. Well, hallelujah. But you ought to want to look like mama. And look like daddy. There ought to be a desire in you. To have that family resemblance. That's your standard. That's the flag that you're flying to this world. To identify where you belong. Well, hallelujah. People say, well, you don't have Bible for that. Well, you're going to be surprised as I go through these standards just how much Bible I do have for the things that I preach and teach. Things that I've heard others say, well, there's no Bible, there's no Bible. You wait and see if there isn't some Bible. I'm going to give you Bible. But I shouldn't have to. Because you ought to look around and say, this is the way all the men in this church look. I want to look like them. The ladies ought to look around and say, this is the way the ladies in this church look. I want to look like one of them. All right. yes, sir. 
And if you got any questions about it, because there will be new folks, and you're going to see a few that are around that haven't quite caught on yet. So if there's any question, you see somebody looking some way that the rest of the church doesn't look like, then look at my wife, ladies, and look at me. And you can tell by that what our standard is. That's the flag of the truth church. That's not difficult to understand. Now, we're, we're talking tonight about the need for standards. And standards, standards can be of great value if they're used for the right purpose. And, and I would remind you, we're not going to go there tonight, but I would remind you that in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul let us know that the gifts of the Spirit were most effective if they were administered in love. In fact, in fact um, some people fail to understand. 1 Corinthians 12 deals with gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14 deals with gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And some people seem to think that Paul got off topic. He didn't. He was still talking about the gifts. Read the chapter and see. But he's saying it, what he's saying here is, you can have all these gifts, you can operate all these gifts, but if you don't do it in love, you're wasting yours and everybody else's time. And I would dare say the same thing is true as we go through standards, and we're going to be dealing a lot with it. We're going to get into a lot more specifics in the coming weeks than we have heretofore. But I want to tell you, if all you're doing, if you're doing it with a drudgery, if you're hating every minute of it, if you're saying, well, this is just legalism. Well, I have to do this or I'm going to get thrown out of the church. You're wasting your time. You need to fall in love with living this way. This is not about being bound. This is about expressing our love to Him. I've said it many times, but, but when I know that my wife dislikes something, I, I'm not bound to her when I try to avoid those things she dislikes. I do that because I love her. If I know she doesn't like some tie, then I'm not going to wear that tie. She know, if I know that she doesn't like me styling my hair a certain way, then I'm not going to style it that way. Right. Is it because I'm in bondage to her? No. It's because I love her. Well, this is about love, not legalism. So... Standards, standards like the gifts will be most beneficial when we, number one, understand their purpose and number two, see to it that they are both administered and adhered to in love. I don't want to be a dictator. I've never wanted to be a dictator. 
fact, I don't even want to be the town marshal. I don't want to go around enforcing everything. And believe me, I've seen it. I've seen it. I don't want to live that way. And I don't think I should have to live that way. I think that the people of God ought to have something in their heart that says, all right, I see in the scripture that God doesn't like this, so I'm not going to do it. I see in the scripture this is pleasing to God, so I'm going to do it. Not, well, my pastor makes me do this. That's the worst answer you could ever give. In fact, I think you're going to be surprised at how infrequently I use the verse that says, Obey them that have the rule over you. Now, I could throw that out for every hole in the standard that I want to set. I could. I, I, could, I could just say from now on, um, nobody can wear blue. And then get up and say, obey them that have the rule over you. Right. And I've known a situation that's just about that ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Now that scripture exists and I believe that scripture. But I don't believe that as your pastor, I have the right to be a lord over God's heritage. I'm here to be a leader, to lead you in the paths of righteousness. I'm here to teach you the difference between the profane and the holy. Now, worse comes to worse, push comes to shove, and you won't listen to any other scriptures I've got, then I might pull that one out of the hat. I just don't see it, preacher. I just don't see it. Okay, well, in that case, obey them that have the rule over you. But I can promise you as we go through these holiness standards, that's not going to be my go-to verse. I am a firm believer and have always been that people will more readily line up to the things that they understand. And you take good, sincere, well-meaning children of God and you explain to, him, explain to them, this is why we do this. This is why we dress this way. This is why we live this way. And, and I'm telling you, most times, they'll just do it. Because they understand it. I see why. I understand why. It makes sense to me. And that's what I want to do over the next several weeks. I want it to make sense to you. All right, I'm really way ahead of myself. But, but, but the more that the purpose and use of standards are understood, the better qualified a person will be to keep them. David understood the purpose of standards. Psalm 20, verse 5. We will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. 
the, the Lord fulfill all thy petitions. We'll rejoice in thy salvation and in the name of our God we'll set up our banners. The psalmist had a close relationship with God and he wanted his banners, his standards to be set up in the name of the Lord. Those physical banners, those standards identified him with the Lord. I'm rejoicing in God's salvation and I want the world to know I belong to him. I want my flag to announce to everybody I belong to him. That's what David was saying. Those physical flags, physical banners indicated to others, this is where our strength comes from. It's God that's fighting our battles. We're not doing this on our... Look, what, what did David say when he went against Goliath? You come to me with a sword and a spear. I come to you how? David said, I'm not the one fighting you, Goliath. If it was me against you, I'd lose. I'm not fighting you. God's the one fighting you, and that's why you're going down. David understood God was his strength. And he wanted his flags, his banners, his standards to represent that to everyone. And so we need to understand their purpose. In the spiritual walk, there are standards that identify the church as belonging to Jesus Christ. And when we're not afraid of the enemy, then we are more than willing to wave these banners high. You know why people struggle with standards? Because they're afraid they're going to stand out. They're afraid someone's going to notice a difference about them. They don't want to have to answer questions. I'm telling you the truth. And you know what? That borders on shame. Think about it. It really borders on being ashamed of who you are. I don't want to answer questions about this. That's... Sometimes it's, we're talking about a new convert. We're, we're, you know, they, they may be thinking, well, I don't know how to explain it. And so it may not be shame. It may be that they're embarrassed that they don't have better answers. So I don't want to categorize everybody that way. But here's the thing. If you don't understand it and you don't have good answers, do you know what the correct way to deal with that is? You let the banner fly anyhow, and you study to show yourself approved to God. You find the answers. And if you can't find them, that's what I'm here for. I'll help you find them. I want you to understand it. Now, I will tell you this. In the next few weeks, you come to me wanting to know about a particular standard. My answer is probably going to be, wait a while. I'm going to get to it. And the reason why I'm going to give you that answer is because I'd much rather have an hour or so to teach on it than to try to give you a texted answer. 
I want you to hear all of the reasons. Not just a quick one-liner. If you're going to force me to give you a quick one-liner, you know what it's going to be? Obey them. They have the rule over you. No, it's probably going to be wait a while. That's probably going to be what I'm going to tell you. Just wait a while. I'm going to get to it, and I'm going to give you a biblical response. I think, I hope, after, now I know you all, not all of you have been here 27 years, but for whatever length of time you've been a part of, of this church and set under my ministry, I hope that you've come to understand that I don't do anything off the cuff when it comes to leading this church. It's going to be based on Scripture. That's just the way I operate. But fear, sometimes, you, you know, you get into battle and, and, and boy, you, you know, it used to be, I don't know how it is anymore, I don't know anything about war anymore. I don't think they know anything about war anymore. I don't think, I don't... I don't think the Pentagon knows anything about war anymore. Um, I think they're a little soon in, in, in adhering to the words of that song. Ain't going to study war no more. <laughs> I think they quit studying it a long time ago. But it used to be. I tell you what, you, you, you read anything at all about the Civil War, and one thing is certain. They would have their flag at the front line. They were not embarrassed to fly that flag. They wanted everybody to know who they were. And they took that flag seriously. And if one runner that was holding the flag was shot down, somebody would try to catch it before it hit the ground so they'd get it back up there. They wanted that enemy to know, you're not bringing our flag down. I wish some one God apostolics would feel that way about our standard. Hey, enemy, you're not bringing our flag down. We're not letting our flag fall to the ground. We're going to fly it as high as we've ever flown it. Courage and boldness in this warfare against sin ought to cause the church to bravely lift this flag high and tell the world proudly whose side we are on. You see, the church is ordained to be a light in this world. And light stands out in the darkness. It makes something become conspicuous. It's noticeable. It's obvious. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, read. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither Listen, do whoa, whoa, hang on. Listen to me. You cannot be an undercover Christian and be successful. Don't try to hide who you are. 
don't try to be a stealth apostolic. It doesn't work. It only creates problems for you and for everybody else. You know why? Because the moment that you go undercover, you're hiding the light God meant you to be. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, what? Cannot be hid. What? Cannot be hid. Cannot, 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 cannot. And that's what God expects the church to be, is a city on a hill. In other words, he expects us to stand out. Right. He expects us to be obvious. He expects us to be noticeable. Read. Neither do men light a candle. You don't light a candle and put it under, and a, put bushel. It under a bushel. But on a candlestick. You put it on a candlestick. Why light it and put it under a bushel where the light is doing no good? Why even light it if you're going to put it under a bushel? And no doubt God asked that about a whole lot of people that he fills with the Holy Ghost. Why did I put that light in you if you're just going to try to keep it under a bushel? This world is living in darkness. And the only way they're going to find their way is if there's a light to follow. And you are the light of the world. God didn't hide you under a bushel. He doesn't want you hiding yourself under a bushel. God wants you to be on a candlestick. A candlestick. Hmm. Now that word kind of rings a bell. Get your Bible. Go over to the book of Revelation. Now, this is Bible study, so I can throw in a few things. I've mentioned this before, but it is not the book of Revelations. In fact, one and one says what? What does one and one say? The revelation. The revelation. The revelation. Now, some Bibles, you might look at yours and see some Bibles, it says the revelation of St. John the Divine. It should be the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you to throw your Bible away. I'm just telling you that people have named it wrong. That title is not the title God gave this book. In fact, this was written by a Jew. And one thing I have learned... In my recent studies that I am doing and trying to learn the Hebrew language and trying to learn um, Jewish backgrounds in the New Testament and the other classes, courses that I've been trying to follow and study. One thing I've learned is that the Hebrew way of doing it, these books, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, those are Greek names 
that were not given to these books until the writing of the Septuagint. Septuagint was the first Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done a few hundred years before Christ. But up until that time, these books all bore the Hebrew name that was given to it. And the Hebrew name is the first important word of that book. And, and so, totally different names for the most part, although the book of Genesis, uh, Bereshit, is, is, it, it means beginning, which is kind of what, what Genesis means. Uh, there's a, there's a, a close correlation in that case. Uh, but in the beginning, beginning is the first major word in the Hebrew, in that book. And so that's the way it's, it's identified. And... Um, Anyhow, that's another lesson for another day. But, but when you look at this book written by a Jew, what do you think he would name it? He wouldn't name it the Revelation of St. John the Divine. He would just name it Revelation, most likely. But what Revelation? It's not the Revelation of John. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, that's not where we were going. We were talking about you, you don't put a candle under a bushel, but you put it where? You put it on a candlestick. So in chapter 1, verse 20, what does, what does the Bible say? Revelation 1, 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. Uh huh. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers. Angelos, the Greek word, angelos. They are the seven messengers or pastors of the seven churches. And then what does he say? And the seven candlesticks. And the seven candlesticks. Which thou sawest. Which thou sawest. Are the seven are the churches. seven churches. The candlestick is the church. You don't take a candle and light it and put it under a bushel. But you put it on a candlestick. God planted you in a church. He put your candle on a candlestick. Don't be ashamed that you go to the truth church. Don't be ashamed that you're a one God apostolic tongue talker. Don't be ashamed that you're a holiness living individual. Don't be embarrassed. God's the one that lit your candle and put you on the candlestick. Oh, hallelujah. All right, back to where we were. Back to Matthew 5. Uh, we were on verse 15. We didn't finish verse 15. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but, but on a candlestick. And what happens? And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. This is 5 and 14. Matthew 5 and 14. Once it's on a candlestick, it giveth light to all that are in the house. Matthew 5 and 14. That's the book of Matthew. There we go. All right. First book of the New Testament. Fifth chapter. Fourteenth verse. 
All right, so um, 15th verse. Neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And then verse 16. Let your light so shine so before So this men. is what God wants you to do. Let your light so shine before men. That they may see that your they good may, works. That they may what? See your good works. Not see what's in your heart. They can't see what's in your heart. They got to see the way you look and the way you act. They've got to see a difference. There's got to be an observable difference in your life. They need to see your good works and then they will glorify whom? They'll glorify your father because that's what your flag is saying. God is my father. God, the Holy One, is my Father, and they'll give glory to God by the holiness you display in your life. Hallelujah. Oh, Jesus. I'm only on page three out of eight. I thought I was going to finish this lesson tonight. In fact, I didn't even give you that many scriptures. Let me finish this thought. Musicians come. I'll quit. Not what I intended to do. but It's where we are. So, that which attracts attention to a person is the light that others see in them. Now listen to me. Flamboyant clothing, tight clothing, Immodest clothing may draw attention to a person's flesh. But it's not the flesh that needs to be glorified. No flesh ought to glory in his presence. And so that flamboyant or tight or immodest clothing that we put on is not glorifying your father which is in heaven. But, but modest apparel, godly apparel, this can control the physical attraction toward an individual and reveal the Christian personality and allow your genuine Holy Ghost character to shine in your life. And that's what I want. I don't want people noticing I want people to notice the God who lives in me. Well, let's stand and thank God tonight. I've got so much further to go, but we're just not going to get there tonight. Come on, let's thank God. I tell you what, I tell you what, I tell you what. I got one more verse, and then there's a very natural break in this lesson. So let me, let me catch this one verse while you remain standing, while they're trying to figure out what in the world they're going to sing. Let me give you one more, one more verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Now then we are what? Ambassadors. We are what? Ambassadors. We are ambassadors. 
An ambassador is an official representation of a government or an entity. They don't go and say what they want to say or do what they want to do. They shouldn't even dress the way they want to dress. But when they go, they're not representing themselves. They're representing something larger than themselves. Something greater than themselves. And so their words, their actions, even their appearance... should be representative of whomever they are uh, serving. The apostles said we are the ambassadors of Christ. And so it ought to be the objective of the church to represent Christ. What we do, what we say, how we look, it ought to all reflect Jesus Christ. And so in everything, everything, we need to be identified with Him. I want people to see Him. I want them to see I am here on business for the King. I'm doing business for the king. I want them to hear it in my language. I want them to see it in the way I treat others. I want them to notice it in my appearance. I'm representing him. Well, praise God. Our standards, when properly applied to our lives, help to bring that identity about. Amen. Now, let's lift our hands and talk to the Lord.